0: The Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's Politics Podcast. I did manage to get that out. I'm your host, Emma Grainy, who apparently can't talk properly. And today, with me for the Nothing to See Here edition, we have Sarah O'Donnell. Hi there. Good morning. <laughs> Hello. Paula Simons. Good day. And Gra- you're back to that. That's <laughs> great. And Graham Thompson, hello. You know I'm actually going to be away for a couple of weeks in Australia, so you're going to have to really take the reins on
1: that, Paula. Well, I'll do my best to oh. try and keep the end up here. Bring in me Vegemite, and uh, no, we're <laughs> not going to do that anymore. That's rude, and uh, and we're not going what to if make Emma fun of this for her family <laughs> in Australia, <laughs> and the they they will know they will program. know how much we have come to love her in the short time she's been with her that she's had this much of an impact on the way I speak. That that's a beautiful way to put it. So, uh, <laughs> for this week's uh, Press
0: Gallery, um, we're going to be talking a few things. F off, nothing to see here, as Graham so eloquently wrote in his column as we talk about FOIP. Quite hanging of a certain portrait in the legislative halls, and also the PC leadership race is hotting up. So, let's start off with FOIP, shall we, Graham? I think Actually,
2: FOIP stands for, officially, Freedom of Information, Protection of Privacy. It's actually F-O-I-P-P. But of course in alberta over the years we've jokingly referred to it as f office private because so often under the pcs you hit a, a roadblock when you try to get things out of the government by requesting information putting a request for a foip PIN. the ndp said look we'll be open and accountable the the old days of secrecy is done when they got elected and the problem is this week we had jill clayton the privacy commissioner I opened an investigation into why it's taking so long for FOIP requests to go through, in particular, the Justice Department. And so this is a bit of a slap in the face to the government. And the funny thing is I tried to get information from the government as to what was happening, why this was happening, and it took me forever to get a response from them.
0: (laughs) The irony is strong. And and then when
2: I got it, it was this one-line bland comment from a spokesperson on behalf of um, the justice minister saying, you know, you know thank you for um, you know your, your question, and we're looking into it, and, and, and thanks to Jill Clayton for bringing this to our attention. Boom.
1: Well, I mean, it, it's completely ridiculous. I filed a FOIP application with the Department of Justice in January of this year. Specifically, I wanted to know information about uh, the number of people who had died in police custody or at the hands of police who were being investigated by the Alberta Serious Incident Response Team. Now, they have 30 days to respond. So in January, I I remember because I did it during that sort of that dead week after Christmas when there's nothing much happening, and I thought, oh, good, I'll do some FOIPs. So I sent in the FOIP thing, months went by, and I thought, that's funny. They have 30 days, and I've heard nothing. So I called them, and they said, oh, whoops, sorry, we lost it, so we'll process it now. And then months more went by, and I called again, and I said, so... Now it's several more months and still no information. And the nice person I spoke to said, well, you know, we're really, really behind. She said, but you could file an official complaint with the Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner. I said, <laughs> "I said, you know what? Just, just process it. So I'm actually not included in the list of complaints because I never filed a complaint. I just waited with the patience of Job until I believe it took six months in total for them to respond finally with information which did not actually answer all of the questions that I had asked them. So when I saw this, I thought, hmm, I wonder how many other people the nice lady who answered the phone suggested should file complaints. Sorry, nice lady who answered the phone. I hope I didn't just get you fired. You know, <laughs> but that, she was telling you add, the right thing, though. Yeah. You know? The thing
2: is, I talked to the privacy commissioner's office to say, okay, can you give me stats as to how many um, requests are going and how fast they're being processed. And they said, we get that usually from the government. They have not seen that kind of inf- information or stats since 2013. What? <laughs> so even the stats that are being released are not being released by the government. This, you know, this starts under, um, uh, be, I guess, Redford <laughs> so and went through uh, Hancock and through Prentice. Now, then, to the NDP, things are no better. So that really it does rankle the new government, when you talk about how they're just like the old PC government, issues like this, it really does get under their skin. But the thing is, they are just like the PC government in certain respects when it comes to getting information out of them. And even when you're looking for a quote from a minister, it takes a day. And I was also asking them to explain why um, they were asking the Wild Rose to pay $70,000 for one FOIP request. And I put the call in to the government on Wednesday, I can and on Thursday, I got an email back saying, okay, thank you for your email, Mr. Thompson. When's your deadline for this? <laughs> I said, yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: frustrating about all of this is a freedom of information process. It's just not supposed to be political. I know that's very Pollyanna about it, but it is not something that's supposed to be something that's in the hands of cabinet or government officials. It's supposed to be part of the underlying bureaucracy so that when you make the requests, there are these channels and it, and it shouldn't be a matter of oh, the government's keeping things secret, etc. Now, the government could certainly do things to make its life easier. For example, when people ask for information, if you ask for anything that's too detailed, you get told, oh, well, you have to file a FOIP request about that. Well, that's not helpful. (laughs) You could avoid some of this by simply being more forthcoming with information. Of course, if we have to put in FOIP requests, well, then that is going to cause a backlog. The issue of fees I find really frustrating as well because I know that when I've had FOIP requests in the past, they do come back with absorbent fee requests. And then you have to fight and make the case to the privacy commissioner or sometimes first to the body, whatever department you're looking for, Um, and then you have to appeal it often, uh, that the information you're asking for is in the public interest, and therefore it should be provided at a minimal fee or free of charge. And I think when we've made those arguments, we win them, but you have to go through those hoops and... Uh, it can take years to go through this process. Yeah, exactly. I have
1: to say, in 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 fairness to the Department of Justice, my, my prize for waiting six months for information that I was supposed to get in thirty days was that they waived the fee. They, you know, they sent me my check back. Hooray. So that was so six that,
3: months. By the way, is super fast. Well, but what I was asking for is, and this
1: speaks to Sarah's point. What I was asking for was pretty basic information. I wasn't looking for secret emails or hidden documents. I was asking for information which should have been, frankly, on the website of Acer. How many people died in custody? I mean, I asked for the names, which they just refused to give me point blank. But I didn't think it was unreasonable to ask how many people died. That, that is a number that I shouldn't have had to file a FOIP request for in the first place.
0: It does seem like stuff that should be on the record.
2: It's getting better than the old days, back in the days of Ralph Klein. I put a FOIP request in, and I, I got a call back from the Premier's office saying, uh, you're, you're FOIPing us, why? What do we need to know? <laughs> they're not supposed to, <laughs> they're not to not know. Even that, supposed that is to wrong
0: know. on so many levels.
2: <laughs> no. The thing is, that the people in the government right now are saying sort of unofficially, speaking of being political, they're accusing the wild rose of just inundating the government with all kinds of requests for information, and that's tying up the system. But I still think, well, hold on. The opposition and the public have a right to know what's happening in government. And I think that too often they are stymied. And we've seen examples over the years. Now, this is the old PC government. A former uh, colleague of ours, Archie McLean, and with the PCs were in power. Archie spent months trying to get information on, there's been a report apparently comparing our royalty rates to other jurisdictions in the world. There'd been a study done from the government. And he spent months to get it. When he got it, it was redacted to the point, he couldn't, there's nothing to read, it was all blacked out. So he complained, complained, complained and they released it, but they made it public to all the media said okay and now available a report on the royalty rates so it's a way of screwing around with reporters at the end of the day they give it to everybody
3: and then they say oh but we thought you wanted the information to be public in the public interest which we do to be (laughs) fair it is absolutely (laughs) ultimately the goal so but but yes it does sort of. i know (laughs) i know believe me i have been i have felt the twist of that knife so i right with you now there
1: is something though that needs to be said here part of the problem i think in fairness is the way this is funded. And I think it's not just up, this is not about politicians interfering. Like, I never got the feeling that the justice minister, that Kathleen Ganley was trying to mess with me when I was looking for this information. The problem is that they don't fund the Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner sufficiently, and they don't have enough staff at the frontline levels. I mean, what I was told is that in justice in particular, there was a personnel issue that, you know, was a human resources thing that they couldn't discuss and couldn't explain because it involved someone's private information. And that, you know, this wasn't some sort of big government conspiracy I, I like to ascribe to Napoleon's theory never ascribe to malice that which can be adequately explained by incompetence yeah. so I mean I think I think that we just if you don't put enough FOIP officers in place and you don't give them enough resources then it's easy to scapegoat them and say oh well see it's the bad FOIP officer in this department who didn't provide the information well if somebody's you know if somebody has to go off and have surgery if somebody you know is is on a maternity leave if you don't backfill these offices if you you don't provide them with enough clerical support, then you know, then, then people develop this whole belief that it's the government conspiring to keep you getting from getting the information. When really the works are just gummed up.
0: I, I come at this from a slightly different perspective, having been a journalist, but also been a communi- in communications and being the person who actually prepared FOIP responses for journalists. So I can tell you, it does take an awfully long time to go and get those little um, post-it notes and uh, sticky tape little black bits on them and make photocopies and chase down emails and go through different departments. It is a pain in the ass, I'm not going to lie. But at the same time, you are under that gun and you've got to get it done. And if you don't get it done, you get in big trouble. It's true. If you don't staff these things properly... You're going to be in all sorts of trouble. And then you end up in the position that justice is left in, whereby you have people waiting. I think what the Wild Rose Party complained that they waited 958 days for a FOIP response. And I think the bigger problem here is we all know about FOIPs. We all understand why they're important. But making it relevant to the general public and saying, dudes, this is stuff that you really need to know and making it relevant for folks is is... And it's hard because it
1: looks like special pleading on our part. I mean, I did not write yeah. a column at any point saying, I've been waiting for this many months for this information because you know what? Other journalists get indignant, but normal people don't care that I, Paula Simons, have been grotesquely inconvenienced by the uh, the inefficiency of the way my paperwork is being handled. So you do, you're do, you right. You have to be able to contextualize it for people to explain that the information you were looking for is relevant.
3: And it is important to remember that this is, FOIP is not the exclusive domain of the opposition and journalists no this is a tool that's available to the public and we had a letter to the editor today from someone who wrote about her challenges getting a freedom of information request and i believe that one was through the department of education i'm not sure the details of it but the point is this is a tool that is available for all albertans and uh yeah staffing is absolutely an issue and that's something that i think every department will have to look at if they have enough people in place to handle the requests they get
0: well yeah it's people find out information about themselves it's i could write to somebody to find out my file at Ex department right a normal albertan can do that and yet when you have these kind of delays it means a normal albertan cannot find out what their own information
1: on file even is yeah i mean i'm getting paid to phone the justice department every six weeks to say hey ho um but otherwise for for a civilian it's a very intimidating process if you're if you face that kind of blank wall and you're not actually you know doing this as part of your job it's very frustrating i'm sure
2: coming up this month last week in the month is the right to know week is it graham yes which is k-n-o-w But (laughs) too often in alberta (laughs) it's spelt the other way
1: puns on the radio
3: can
0: you can you see this having any political implications aside from just basically irritating everybody well I,
1: the thing is I, paul is right the average person doesn't really care no um, hi, hi out there in and radio of course, land and, sorry and for the but no you minutes. who are listening to us are not average we know that you our <laughs> listeners are well above Absolutely. average you
3: know being secretive though can be very being accused of being secretive right. can be very hurtful to government yeah, but,
2: but sometimes it's better than actually letting the secrets out <laughs>
3: I guess it depends on what they are.
2: Because governments have a natural inclination. a default setting is to, to be secretive. And it's difficult for them sometimes to give up stuff.
3: And speaking
0: of things being very quiet, yesterday in the legislative building, there was quite a, a very, very quiet thing happened. We, have, we now have a pretty new portrait. It's very exciting. Who wants to weigh in on this?
2: This is a portrait of Alison Redford, the official portrait every time a premier steps down a few months or a year or so later. They unveil and a portrait of that premier that's then hung outside the premier's office. There's there's 14 now, 13 premiers, uh, plus Redford now is is now hanging there. And normally, I think every time there's that ceremony. Every
3: time that there's been one There's a ceremony. There's a a Yeah, they have tea and pastries. Yes,
2: exactly. It's a very um, polite affair, and the the premier can talk about the legacy and be a few questions from the media, puffball questions. Well, Redford's (laughs) portrait was just brought up unceremoniously by a couple of workers with a ladder and a level, and they <laughs> hang it up, and they get the level and make sure it's level. Take the ladder and the level away, and there it is. That's 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 the portrait unveiling.
3: And a statement and came a statement from, from the, the government, s- the speaker's
2: office, put but, a statement but out
1: sometime afterwards. I think, didn't <laughs> it? At the same oh, time, yeah, it, it was, it was about about twenty same, minutes. Yeah, yeah, ten minutes later,
2: it. and they have a statement from the speaker's office saying, "Here's a statement from Alison Redford," and she said basically. Uh, she didn't want a ceremony. These are times, she says, for premiers to talk about their legacies, but she said didn't want that, and she wants history to basically you know, pass judgment objectively on her time in office.
0: But for those at home, Graham just put air quotes around objectively.
2: <laughs> and the thing is, I think that you know, she's saying she wants it to be objective, history, deal with it later, because she knows she's still a very controversial figure, and I think there's two things. She knows that if she had an actual ceremony, it wouldn't be a genteel affair with, with you know, cookies and coffee. It'd be the media circus trying to get her to answer questions about her time in office. Uh, also, there's the ongoing so-called tobacco gate Affair, which I think is going to go nowhere. This is dealing with her. Yeah, but you're right. She's
3: still technically under investigation. Investigation
2: on. that no, this is the uh, uh,
3: ethics. Whether is she appropriately exactly. uh, awarded a contract
2: to right. her ex-husband's law firm to deal with lawsuits against tobacco companies. To be uh, if that's going to go nowhere, I think. But still, that's still a question mark. And there's all the kind of things that actually happened to her while she was in office. And more recently, we had the uh, investigation into that leak, the telephone bill leak from Lukaszik, yeah. that seems to point back to her chief of staff at the time in March of 2014, days before she resigned, they were doing some digging into files on Lucasic. And we've got to figure, well, what's going on there? So I think she knows that the attention wouldn't be about the hanging. It would be about <laughs> a different kind of political hanging. So I think that that's why she, she said uh, no to a ceremony. It was, it was sad, though.
3: I thought so, too. I mean, do you really think that it would have been that, a horrible event. I mean, typically these things, even when the premiers aren't necessarily completely beloved, they're, they're respectable events. I, I, I did think it was sad, and I also felt the statement. I had mixed feelings about the statement that she issued as well, because I felt like she was still blaming Albertans for not getting her, and I wasn't sure that was fair either. So it was just I had mixed feelings about the whole morning and the whole. Which hanging. really,
1: could there be a better legacy for Alison Redford than
3: a bunch of mixed
1: feelings? <laughs> I mean, it, I have to say, at the time that, that she resigned, uh, I wrote a column because there were people who said, there should never be a portrait of Alison Redford. She, her, you know, her image should never be allowed to hang on the walls. And I said to people, really, see, it's not like a popularity contest. It's not about getting elected prom queen. It's about commemorating history. And despite the very mixed legacy Redford leaves behind, she was the first woman to be premier of Alberta. I mean, we don't, we don't opt not to hang portraits of people we don't like. It's, it's a a recording of history. What's interesting is that the picture itself is so non committal. I mean some of the There's nothing in that background, it's just brown. Yeah, no, I mean I I, I, I joked in a in a radio interview with uh, with Charles Adler that, you know, it might have been more fitting if they'd, you know, painted the Sky Palace in the backdrop, but uh, you know, or have her, you know, pose on top of the penthouse of the federal building. But instead it's just like a murky brown background and then she's got her hand on a pile of imaginary books that have Titles that I suppose are supposed to represent equality, equality, diversity, mm-hmm. opportunity, energy. There's there's a global one that's global upside, down? Yeah, oh, upside, upside down. Oh, is that what I are Well, it's upside down. It's tough to read. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and then the, like in her hand is sort of it's like diversity of something, and then her fingers are covering it. So it's it's, I mean, it's not an unflattering portrait of her. I think it captures her reasonably well. But but it's funny, you know, when you when you look down that portrait gallery, some of them. The Ralph Klein portrait is really not good. Harry Strom, who is certainly not going to go down in history as one of our greatest premiers, has a fantastic portrait. Um, you know, some of them were painted by quite notable Alberta painters. It didn't seem as
3: personal as some of the other portraits, yeah. right? I mean well, Ed Stellmak's portrait was very personal. There's a picture, picture of his, of his wife. wife Marie in that. Um and it's in the office. It's said in the office, wasn't That's it? Right. And, and Klein's
2: is in his office, but the picture the, it's a view of the mountains from his premier's office which of course <laughs> doesn't should, work we, out that way which,
1: which really what which, which more do you need to know about ralph klein and his vision but so. you know, there
2: were some personal touches in there another thing is that of course the other ones are all men but they're all looking at the observer yeah that's she's a good not point. she's looking up and away with a bit of a smile on her face yep so it's different in that respect as well it's interesting that she's not looking at you. She's looking away.
3: I was wondering what this is going to mean, though, because there are still two other premiers you who need to have portraits well, I know. hung. Uh, Jim Prentice and um, Dave, Hancock. Dave Hancock. I mean,
1: Hancock's going to want his party. Absolutely, ha- Hancock yes. is a sociable, affable guy. Dave Hancock is going to want sandwiches and little tea cakes and macarons. And because and gonna, and
2: Hancock gonna, had no real controversy, he, yeah. just, he, he, was, he was a caretaker, an interim premier. He was still premier.
1: But there, people he, have said to me, oh, his portrait shouldn't be there either because he wasn't a real premier. It's like,
3: he no, no. still the premier. the premier. Of course he was the premier. Of course he was the premier, yeah. Of course he was the premier. But the
2: question is
3: Is Jim Prince, Prince
2: going to turn up? <laughs> because he's a guy, only eight months, he was premier, and he took the PCs down to defeat. So I his legacy well, oh, okay, I'm sorry, sorry, yeah, you're no, feeling no, no. sorry for him, which is fine, but still, he brought them down to defeat. Yes. Will he stand there in front of the media and take questions about his legacy?
0: Well, does this set a precedent where premiers should. can just not? I also thought they, they should like... call an election, so maybe,
3: <laughs> <laughs> maybe he shouldn't take my advice. And I had different <laughs> reasons for them wanting to call it an election.
0: On this too, uh, Brian Mason, who of course was in the house when uh, Alison Redford was, he, he made a point of saying, you know what, some of the controversies at the end of her term maybe overshadowed uh, what she did, but she did do good things while in office and we need to
1: respect that and we really need to acknowledge that. But I think I think Sarah's question about Jim Prentice is, is the fascinating one. I mean, is he actually... Because I, I would feel very badly for Dave Hancock if he didn't get a party. I'm pretty sure that Dave Hancock is going to make sure that... That there are refreshments and that that there is conviviality. Um, I think Dave Hancock is also a little wee bit bored in retirement, so I think he would. <laughs>
3: so he really likes a macaroon. I'm sorry. sure he would dispute that assessment. But, no, no. I mean,
1: he's, he, I mean, he's he's. Uh, I mean, he's keeping himself busy. He's, he's uh, working for a big law firm and he's on the board of the lawheed Leadership Center at the University of Alberta. But um, I asked him not long ago if he was bored, and he said. <laughs> ah, well, then, there you go. He he he, he loved being in the legislature.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree, Paula. He will want his 15 minutes of fame again when they have the unveiling for him. Absolutely. And he, what the heck? You know, he deserves that he was still premier of the province. And I'm, I think, you know, Redford, maybe she should have come, but I, I understand why she didn't. And I'm wondering now about Prentice, what's going to happen with him.
0: I don't we'll know. see. I just, the fact that we didn't
1: have a party really rankles with me because I really like tea and pastries. <laughs> But you know, it's it's interesting. I was at the legislature this week, where I do not normally uh, am not normally based these days, to do a a video about the life and legacy of Norman Kwong, um, you know, lieutenant governor, remarkable Albertan, and we went up to the portrait gallery uh, and shot the video there. And there's something timeless about a portrait, and I'm really glad we're going to have an Alison Redford portrait because let her be judged by history and let her face hang there as part of the legacy of the history of this province that's what the portrait gallery is for speaking of um leaders of parties pc race is hotting up a little bit
0: well by a little bit i mean like a really tiny little bit (laughs) but i I thought
3: one more name uh name well that's that's a hundred percent increase in the number that's true mathematics well and i did think the timing was a little bit interesting when donna kennedy glans uh revealed that she is, through an email, I guess, to the fellow PCs, that she's planning to announce that she's running for the PC leadership because she was significant in the whole, I think, ultimate demise of Alison Redford's premiership. It was easy to write off Len Weber leaving caucus as kind of sour grapes at the Same. time. Back she's not in a nice lady. 2014. Yeah. But when Donna kennedy Glans, Calgary varsity MLA from 2012 to 2015, walked away and didn't just resign her cabinet post, but left caucus and didn't do it in a big stormy way, but just said, there's things happening that I don't know about. And that was seriously damaging for Alison Redford, I thought at the time. And And so I just thought it was so interesting that these two stories uh, kind of both resurfaced uh, on yesterday, Thursday. And especially because Donna
1: Kennedy-Glans, I think had been perceived as a Redford ally and very much you know, cut from the same kind of cloth as a social progressive... Fiscal conservative, smart, you know, smart woman, you know, and I don't, I really think that alliance, I think that the perception that they were similar people was a perception that wasn't grounded in reality. But I think that Sarah's right. I mean, when Donna Kennedy Glans quit, you couldn't say, well, that's misogyny or that's, you know, mm-hmm. someone who didn't accept a female premier in the first place. I mean, because she, she was someone who had backed Redford, you know, been elected in that election. And so her, her defection was a much more telling blow at the time. So it'll be very interesting to see um, with her coming back, she never did hold a major cabinet position. I think she always at some level resented the fact that she didn't hold a major cabinet I don't know about position that. but because I think she came in with the
3: perception in that election that she was a star candidate. And yeah, what, what I was wondering about for Graham is, because you know the party a little better than I do, but do you think it will hurt her that she's somebody who walked away from the party at one point, and she did sit as an independent? Now she did come back. You
2: no, know, I, I would say because Redford is so unpopular, and you're right. Like um, at the time, her walking away from Redford was a lot more damaging than anything else. And of course, within days, Redford three had, days later had had was gone. while well, he resigned as as premier. Um, I think that uh, the thing is, she's not that well known. And Paula's right, she was never really a a shining star in the caucus, in the cabinet. I think that she does bring the label of progressive to this this race. Expect to see more of that because it's going to be sort of anybody but Kenny when it comes to this race. They'll they'll be coming forward. Of course, Jason Kenny wants to become leader of the PCs and undermine the party and smush it together with the Wild Rose, former brand new party. The other ones that are going to be coming forward will be saying, we're not here to destroy the PC party. She's the first to come forward. She's not that high profile. We'll see how she does, but she's, uh, of course, female, progressive. And I think that what happened back in 2014 shows that she has some principles that she will stand up for.
1: It's interesting what this will mean for Sandra Jansen's potential candidacy, because they really sort of fish at the same end of the pond. But Kennedy Glanz, I think, has a better business background. Sandra was a former journalist and there's nothing wrong with being a former journalist we're very smart cookies but i think donna kennedy glans has deeper roots yeah, in the in the calgary oil business, in the yeah. oil community
0: but did her brother start um, a very famous canadian punk rock band like sandra jansen's i didn't know that did you that's not know a fun that. fact i did not fun know fact sandra jansen uh her kid brother started chicks dig it i did not it know that it is a very i used to listen to chicks dig it when i was a teenager in australia i even saw them when they toured in australia they're doing their 25th <laughs> anniversary tour this year so anyway but that is sandra jansen's little brother I the political world and the punk world unite via the progressive conservatives who would have thought
3: <laughs> if they do a launch party <laughs> she should book
0: them
1: That <laughs> mm-hmm. would Absolutely. be amazing but it'll, it'll be interesting because now we have two candidates declared candidates are, like, right, in yeah. the race from calgary uh, no one from Edmonton yet. So it'll be interesting to see geographically how this is going to shape. Or the down.
2: rest of Alberta.
1: Yes, the <laughs> ROA. We were uh, talking with Rick McIver yesterday, actually,
0: and got he weighed in on this and said, oh, the more the merrier. He seemed actually quite gleeful that there was another name in the race, and he hasn't ruled out. He hasn't ruled out running yet.
2: Yeah, his name doesn't come up very often anymore. You know, people are, there's other names. You mentioned Sandra Jansen, mm. um, Richard Starkey, uh, or Ringo, as we call him because um, that, that's Bringo's real name.
1: Richard Starkey. I just know that... Uh, it's spelled uh, differently. I have, I have a new soft spot for Richard Starkey because his dog has a Twitter account, Lizel the Dog, and I now follow Leasel the Dog on Twitter, and she's quite delightful. So that's a whole...
2: We're way off topic.
3: Here. Um, <laughs> hey, again, we, the, <laughs> I, 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 we're learning lots of fun facts, though. The so. thing is,
2: um, the will the party wants to see more people come forward because this race... Yeah, The absolutely. thing is, Kenny has made this a race interesting. If it wasn't for him, there'd be nothing... On this race, yep. Now it's becoming more interesting. We're He's in the race, about it again. and I know uh, we just can't kind of stop talking about this. October first is when they officially kick off the
1: race. Yeah. M- meanwhile, you know, uh, Brian Jean released this week a, a, vi- a video of him doing push up push up video twenty twenty two push ups twenty two days all around Alberta, and it's a very sly little piece of marketing because mm-hmm. it's sort of you know a Trudeau esque Here's Brian Jean looking manly doing push ups in in very Alberta settings. Here's, and at his here's, wedding. Here's Brian Jean doing push-ups by a barbed wire fence. Yeah, I thought here's it was a great, great video. I, it is no, a it great video. Great. Here's Brian Jean doing a push-up by the San Gudo sign. And I thought... And I, by the Brian Jean van as well. That's so it's right. has got his face and, on and it. And, it, and it, it never needs to say, hey, Jason Kenny, can you do a push-up? Because it's, that's just <laughs> that's the subtext of the whole thing. Look at me being a real Albertan. I, I suggested to the editors that we should shoot a video of me attempting and failing to do push-ups in
3: 22 I, different languages. I did not
1: know that Brian
0: Jean could do 22 push-ups. So in um, 22 apparently. days, yeah. and it- apparently uh, Peter McKay is one of the guy. Uh, if you look at the the portion shot at his wedding, and that guy's a machine. Like he just doesn't stop. It's it's I, I can't. I, I mean I can't really do many push-ups. I don't even know if I could do 22. Uh, and this is all, of course, for P- uh, awareness for PTSD. Yes. Um, As opposed to awareness for Brian Jean. Yes. Right? that's definitely worth pointing out there but yeah it it was a very interesting video it has music on it if you haven't seen it you can go to brian Jean's twitter feed i think i retweeted it at some point you did that's how i saw it oh yeah Yeah. okay very good uh i I don't know how do we get to that who even knows anymore how we get anywhere (laughs) uniting the right through (laughs) push-ups So on that note, uh, let's
3: move over to our regular segment, Good Stuff from the Gallery. Sarah, I'm going to start with you. So I'm going to recommend more of an entire website than a particular piece. If you haven't checked out Atlas Obscura, it's www.atlasobscura.com. You really should. I find it a delightful site. They take stories about oddities from all over the globe. And sometimes I actually do have, you know, they're connected to political uh, things as well. So for example, North Korea just apparently launched a, another underground nuclear test, and they have a little item up today about, do you know what an underground nuclear test looks like? And they pull it out. But then you can also read about, you know, 15 of the world's most beautiful amazing libraries or the history of the log flume ride and why it's still so darn popular in America. Um, it's just full of fun facts and oddities, and I tend to send my some of my friends links from uh, this site and they're like seriously another one but no you'll you'll love it I do so it is a know. really
0: great site actually my husband and I used it to find an abandoned Russian military installation when we were in Latvia or Lithuania one of the two earlier this year anyway it's super fun
1: Paula <laughs> I am going to recommend a really remarkable piece of long form narrative journalism from the Los Angeles Times it's called Framed and it's about PTA politics it's about the story of a sort of a Love beloved hippie mom in Irvine, California, who was sort of the perennial volunteer at the school. You know, everybody thought she was great, except um, she accidentally locked a, a little boy out of out of school at you know sort of a, at a recess break for five minutes, and his parents, who were both uh, high profile lawyers, lost their minds and framed her planted drugs in her car called the police tried to get her you know and, and this is this is the United States I mean they find you with drugs in your car they are not fooling around um, but the police some things didn't sit right with them and they spent an incredible amount of man hour in investigating and this is just it's a remarkable piece of journalism written for the web that just pulls you in it is like a movie script waiting to be made an extraordinary piece of reportage and just just an amazing read
0: i'm gonna recommend a piece from australia As I'm headed there next week It's by Australian Broadcasting Corporation It's called Wittenoom, the survivors of an erased town It is the last three people Living in an asbestos Ravaged town that's been Abandoned and the government Kind of said everyone get out it's too dangerous And they went meh And so there's three people left living there There's nothing else, there's all these signs around About how you'll die and how you have to wear Protective clothing and there's these three people The nearest grocery store is 150 kilometres away or something like that and it's a really, really great read about these three characters who are just hanging out in the town. They're just still living there. They don't even talk to each other, They're really. defying the
3: orders yep. and just...
0: They're just hanging out fascinating. in this town in Western Australia. It's really, really interesting. Graham, what do you have
2: for us? I have a book written by a former Speaker of the Assembly, David Carter. Oh. It's his latest book. Uh, he's got, like, 20 books out. He's um he's a self-published author. It's called Our Fragile Democracy in Defense of Parliament by David J. Carter. Uh it's, uh, some of his thoughts about politics today and over the years. Carter was a controversial figure as <laughs> speaker, to say, put it lightly.
1: He, he was a character.
2: Uh, he once famously he talks about it in the book. Um, one of the, uh, back then, this was 30 years ago, the NDP was the official opposition. Leo Paquette, uh, NDP MLA, spoke French, wanted to speak French in the House, and he was shut down very quickly by Carter saying, that's illegal, it Became a big in, you know, national story about uh, Alberta being backwards, but um, Carter defends his actions to this day. Um, the book came out last month, a bit of controversy in a sense, not controversy, but got attention because he talks about, and this is really odd, um, sexually, he's been sexually assaulted. He was 1977, he was in his 40s. He, at that time he was a clergyman before he went to politics. He went to some um, convention in the States and he was in a hotel room with an archbishop of the Anglican Church who grabbed him and started kissing him. And he said, what the heck? And so he left, ran away, uh, flew back home. And he never talked about this for years. And then after the guy died, this after the archbishop died, Carter went to his grave and pissed on it. Urinated what? on the grave.
3: And but he writes about this in the he, book? He writes
2: about it in the book. So he's talking oh, wow. about, you know, somebody could be a, a, an adult, a male adult, white, Privileged person and get sexually assaulted by another white male adult, and he kept it uh, secret until he mentioned it in the book.
0: Well, yeah, thanks for joining
1: us. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I didn't know where to go for him, so thank you for joining us this week on the Press Gallery. This will, of course, be on the EdmontonJournal and you can find all our, our other episodes there as well. Um, we're also on the Journal SoundCloud feed. Tune in radio and iTunes. That's so right. join us this time next week. I'm not sure who your host will be, but uh, they'll probably be better at it than I am. So oh, I don't <laughs> think so. And uh, yeah, thanks so much. See you next time in the press gallery.